The scariest crimes are the ones that people cannot explain. In history, there are plenty of elements of crimes that nobody can understand or assume to know, and our tale today is no different. In spring of 1922, a small Bavarian village was shaken by the discovery of a grisly murder at a family farm known as Hinterkaifeck. Six victims, whose ages range from 72 to just two, is believed that they were murdered and the suspect or suspects stayed at the farm to tend to the animals and house for four days after. Today we will look into the ghastly events which would confuse and intrigue detectives and armchair sleuths for over a century now. What happened? Who could have done it? What are some of the supernatural aspects that could have could be considered? Join me as I discuss the gruesome story to round out the spooky month on another episode of The Remedial Scholar. That's ancient history. I feel I was denied critical need to know information. Belongs in a museum, bro. Welcome back everyone to another episode of the Remedial Scholar. I am your host Levi. If you are new, welcome. Nice face. Is that a compliment? No clue. This episode is going to be a good one. I know I say that every time, but I'm really intrigued by this story. The very first time I saw a post about it online some years ago, I wanted to tell everyone it's just so interesting and also mysterious at the same time. But I'm getting ahead of myself as I am often one to do. Of course, a few minor announcements stickers if you would like a sticker let me know i will post about them on the facebook and we'll be mailing them out personally so it might take a few days to get you know a bundle of them out but rest assured they will go out also don't forget to check out the actual merch store i just got one shirt i ordered and i love it i mean i made it but still thank you for the continued reviews i love reading on the, the episode reviews on Podchaser. what's that yeah you can write individual reviews on their website for each episode or you can just go post about it in the facebook group just search remedial scholar podcast on facebook and you can find both the group and the remedial facebook page follow both or neither but i like seeing the comments on topics and memes in the group personally so the last thing before we get to the hinterkaifeck murders is to simply just share us wherever possible word of mouth is our best tool to spread the wealth of knowledge so that's how you do it okay onward to the episode i mentioned at the top of the episode that i wanted to round out this decidedly spooky season with a topic that has both history as well as a creepy factor. At least it does in my opinion, but I I think you're going to agree. As far as the topic being more of a, in the crime category rather than historical, I wanted to share a story of my youth. In high school, I remember I had taken a political science class, which of course falls under the category of social science, and history is also a social science. This will all make sense in a second. Just give me a minute. <laughs> so in this political science class, we discussed a few parts of Nebraska history, and in these stories, we also covered crime. Two biggest ones are uh, Charles Starkweather and Charles Simance. Weirdly enough, they're both named Charles. Don't know what that means, but one of those is more famous than the other one, but both killed a heavy amount of people. I was confused as to why we were talking about this, you know, in this political science class that most of us considered to be about presidents, voting, stuff like that. Looking back, I think it's important to know all of history, not just the flashy items or the famous ones. And while sure, this tale today could be considered famous, but not everyone will know about it. And while I am continuing to get this ball rolling and grow this podcast, I am wanting to balance the unknown with the slightly known or really known just to, you know, keep things from being 
becoming stagnant. So in the spirit of that, let's get into it. Today will be slightly different. In the lead up, we need to contextualize the area, get an idea of life around the area, and also talk about what we know of the victims and the farm itself. All of that before moving into the actual murders themselves, the investigation, and some of the suspicions suspects as being involved along with some supernatural elements people believe around this event. The murders at Hinterkaifeck are interesting not only because nobody knows who did it but also because like most things before the recent half century there just wasn't that much information on the common citizen. Nowadays we have a story about every Joe Schmo in the world if somebody has something happened to them we quickly find out if they were awful or amazing people not so much the case back in 1922 and even less so in more rural places contextually also know that this is a this is in a bavarian village so southern germany almost four years after the conclusion of world war ii or world war one I. I was unable to find specific stats but i have to assume that the financial and cultural distress that the german people faced in the aftermath of world war one had to have impacted the crime rate. I talked about the plight of the German people slightly in the Ugly Carnivals episode, but I will provide a bit of an overview here to set the stage. As many will know, that is, the Treaty of Versailles was something that the German government blamed a lot of their troubles on, but as we discovered, the government itself was not doing itself any favors, making a lot of poor decisions and turning a country still reeling from a major defeat into one of on the brink of financial collapse. Not even on the brink, it was it was bad. <laughs> Insane levels of hyperinflation made everyone millionaires. Sounds cool until you realize that a million marks was, you know, the cost to send a letter in many cases at this time. Literal wheelbarrows of money <laughs> were taken for simple market shopping and cash was even used as wallpaper or even kindle for fire. So things are not super great and a few big name serial killers are afoot in this landscape. So while Hinterkaifeck was shocking, it wasn't alone in some of the gruesome crimes that occurred around the same time. Criminals like Peter Curtin or Carl Denke were doing some really gnarly things like drinking blood and selling human meat to consumers, looking for a good deal in the inflated economy. This obviously wasn't the norm, but I think it is important to note that there are some nefarious people in the country, and I can't help but think that the stressed economy had something to do with it. And again, you know, there was an increase in violent crime, I just could not find a specific number that correlated to it, like that showed, yo, obviously there was this many murders, you know. High numbers of mortality during the war only added to this backdrop, stressing people, you know, even more. Overall, not that it needs to be said, but there was a lot of stress in the country compared to 10 years prior to the murders. With all that, let's take a look at the area. I mentioned that the area was in the southern Bavarian region of Germany. The name Hinterkaifeck actually comes from the name of the nearest village, which is Kaifeck. This is around 40-ish minutes from Munich, which I have heard of, you know, that's, <laughs> Munich's pretty famous. This is major farm country, and and being the trendy and cool people that they were, the family at Hinterkaifeck uh, gave their name, <laughs> their farm, that name to describe its location. Hinter meaning behind, essentially. So the farm is behind Kaifeck, Hinterkaifeck. It also comes across as very small town vibes, not only because, you know, it was a small town, but because of the way everyone in Kaifeck seemed to know each other or know somebody's business. This is important to note because some of the later reactions, investigations, interviews that I'll be discussing. The nearest major town is Schrobenhausen, which had a population around 3,800 in 1919. It's around five miles away from the farm, and they are the ones who would take hold of the initial investigation. The farm itself was relatively modest and sat near a patch of forest, which had been named Witchwood, which does not instill confidence for this tale. There's also no direct neighbor farms, However, there were farmland, which essentially 
just means that no direct neighbor houses really, although people would pass by Hinterkaifeck regularly. It was also just down the road from a small village that, you know, has grown in the decades since, but at the time was not quite anything to write about. The farm itself, to the best of what I've been able to find and different things I have researched, uh, said the land of Hinterkaifeck was on 51 tag work which is essentially you know shoot from the hip type measurement fairly similar to an acre so 51 acres give or take not super important but i like to know these things you know the farm structures were built in 1864 and sold to a man named johan awesome <laughs> johan awesome uh it's asam so maybe awesome i don't know uh the father-in-law of one of the victims, former farm father-in-law, I guess. Johan uh, purchased the property in 1865. There's, you know, two main buildings, the longer of which was connected in an L-shaped pattern. The main building consisted of several rooms. The left wing of the L-shape was mostly living quarters. On the far wall was the master bedroom with a kitchen, guest room, and another bedroom. Halfway through on the long side were feeding stalls. And then the L corner is the stable or barn interchangeable. Um, you'll, you'll hear me call it both. Um, on the back side of that is a machine house. The machine house is uh, just like a, uh, almost like a generator room. It, it's a small closet, but that'll also come up later. There's not a super lot of good graphics out there for the farm. I mean, there are, but a lot of them are in German. So, so there's that. But, um, you know, the farm was destroyed a year after the murders. So a lot of, a lot of German resources, not a lot of uh, other people, because they're the only ones that really have been historically invested in this building has two doors leading outside the original front door you know in the kitchen faces north to the street but came unusable due to a unconventional water pipe construction three additional doors branch off from the kitchen one from the southwest into the maid's chamber where one was where one person was found dead and another to the northeast leading into the uh, the food kitchen and the third to the southeast leading into a narrow hallway connecting to the bedrooms of the the Grubers and then uh, Victoria and her children which would be just east of the stable now I'm gonna upload pictures of this so it'll make sense when you look at it but um, yeah anyway the courtyard door serves as a main entrance the stable separated by a long feeding trough into a feeding passage and the stable area houses divided boxes for different animals you know stalls door in the barn area accessible from the stable barn features a small attached housing like i said for the machine housing and then there's wooden division divisions within the barn itself and four victims were discovered in the door area of that section so they also stored all kinds of things in there not super important but just kind of giving you an idea you know where l shapes that's where the barn slash stable connects to the feeding trough and then on the back side of that which would be like the outside of the the l angle um is where the machine house is so there's also an attic it's uh not structurally separated throughout um and it allows access from the first floor to the from both the barn area and the living area where they would store stuff but also where the suspected killer would have hung out a little bit um there's a smoking chamber and then under the living area there's you know big stores where they put you know <laughs> potatoes sugar beets barley stuff like that and then milk barrels water supply from Hinterkaifeck uh, comes with its own well which is handy and then there's also a bakery on the thing 
So anyway, <laughs> 1877, the farm passed from Johann Assam to Joseph, his son. That same year, Joseph married Cecilia, uh, who I will refer to as Cecilia from here on out because I found that that's what it's connected to in English. The pair actually inherited the farm through this marriage, which is a kind of custom that will happen again here soon. The pair would own the farm until Joseph's death in May of 1885, with Johan dying the year prior. The farm was solely Cecilia's now, and she would marry a man named Andres, Andreas Gruber in 1886, arranging the marriage in late 1885 with that. Now we can, you know, introduce the family. Family that was occupying the farm, pretty typical. You have Andres Gruber, who married into the farm with Cecilia, as I mentioned. And then they had one child between them who survived infancy, named Victoria. And then she had two children by the time 1922 arrived. Now, not without controversy, Andreas was uh, stoic, which is pretty on brand for German farmers at the time. He was also charged with an incestuous relationship with his daughter, which could potentially have ended up fathering one, if not both, of Victoria's children. So that's gross. There are some contemporary accounts of the Gruber family being fairly wealthy, hardworking, but having kept to themselves, often closed off to residents in the small village of Groburn, which was the one I mentioned earlier. So seldom that the uh, mail carrier rarely handed them mail in person, save for a few times a year, allegedly. However, I did find an interview sometime later that the postal worker had given describing them as approachable and conversational so there's some discrepancies in the people of the neighboring villages and towns and the postal workers stories in addition to this there were tales of their you know stockpiling large quantities of food under under the floorboards basically in the stores I mentioned which I have to think was probably beneficial at the time you know when the German mark was almost worthless and you know it's costed so much to eat a lot of money needed for groceries some people described Andreas as fairly mean to his wife in particular and rough to the people who worked at the farm for him he also fought with a few individuals with a gun or pitchfork or hands he's a feisty fella I don't think any of that shocks me but these are the things to keep in mind as we discuss the possible suspects later on Cecilia was older than Andreas nine nine years older in fact in 1849 for Cecilia compared to 1858 for Andreas when they were born. Cradle Rob much? Just kidding. Cecilia was Andreas' only wife, and thus Victoria was his only child. Cecilia, on the other hand, having been married to Joseph Assam for, uh, had three children together, two dying in infancy, but one would live until 1953, which is impressive, especially given their birth-to-death ratio. Cecilia would be pregnant three times with Andreas, but, uh, only Victoria would make it to adulthood. Victoria is probably the most intriguing backstory. She was born in 1887, the first and only pregnancy to survive past two between them. I'm not super shocked by that, of course. You know, uh, women give birth well into their 30s and 40s now, but medical advancements have made it much safer process than it ever had been before that. In the 19th century, I can't imagine how hard it must have been for Cecilia. In any event, Victoria lived with her parents at Hinterkaifeck, and if you remember the gross thing I mentioned before, then just now it wasn't too long before it started to happen. It was in 1907 to 1910 that the first charge of an incestuous relationship was given. It's unknown what uh, occurred, what made it start, but if I had to have my guess, I would put it a blame squarely on the person who wasn't a child in this scenario. It is stated in a few sources that this could have been started when she was around 16 so also gross I mean sure 1903 different time I get it but still also your own child 
That's some real, real backwoods behavior if I've ever heard it. Anyway, Andreas would receive a year in jail in 1915 and Victoria somehow also gets punished within, uh, with a month. I say that like it's surprising. Of course she got punished. What kind of episode would this be if there wasn't a cautionary tale of a woman being screwed by the system for something, you know, she didn't do? Oh, by the way, <laughs> did you pick up that I said first a second ago? If not, you'll be surprised to hear that they were charged again in December of 1919 for the previous two years. This is why I believe that it is certainly plausible for this man to have been her children's dad slash grandpa. While the first charge was from 1907 to 1910, they wouldn't be punished until later. In the meantime, she did get married to a person who was not her father, which is cool. In March of 1914, she was given the title of the farm, and since she was to be married the next month, I'm not sure if it was like a gift or what, but April 1914, Victoria made, married Carl Gabriel, a strapping young farm boy from nearby Wadehofen. Young Carl actually returns to his parents fairly often, uh, and is said that because of the Grubers didn't feed him enough. Another contemporary account uh, describes him as not being super comfortable with all the incest going on, so... <laughs> which makes sense. A man who we will hear from in a little bit later uh, from, from the area also knew the Grubers and the Gabriels and felt that this was the case, but who is to say exactly why? In my mind, that just creates the possibility that Carl was not into whatever was happening at that house and told someone else that the Grubers were stingy with their food, so he had to run home to be able to actually eat. That sounds like a cover story if I've ever heard one, but they are known to be frugal, so who knows? So Carl allegedly is the father of Victoria's first child. We've got another Kazilia who I will refer to as Cece since that's how all the sources do. Or they just call her Junior since she has the same name as a grandma. Anyway, Cece is born in January of 1915, which means Carl misses the birthday due to the draft in a little known conflict called World War One. I. I also have found that he volunteered, so either way, now he's in the war. Really terrible war to be in because he dies rather quickly. He was signed up on August 14th and died four months later on December 12th, 1914. That timeline does match up if you take him being married to Victoria as they were knocking boots the whole time, but there's some accounts that make it seem as though there's some rigidity to this short marriage. The fact that there is now partial ownership of the farm Hinterkaifeck, yet he decided to place his parents home as the address on record in his draft papers is kind of an interesting thing. So after Cece was born, Andreas and Victoria do their time for their gross crime. As mentioned later, they are charged again. This is in response to Victoria's second child, Joseph. Little Joseph was born on September 7th, 1919, but the next day when Victoria names Lorenz Schlittenbauer as the father, he was not pumped. He refused, called her a liar, and went to as far as to send the authorities after Andreas once again. He essentially said, that's not my baby, and I think you and your dad are plowing again. And then they, you know, were investigated. He did rescind his charge against uh, Andreas and accepted recognizing Joseph as his son. Andreas was released on the 27th of September, but then Lorenz tattled on him again. On October 8th, 1919, Lorenz reports Andreas for incest again. This guy must have really hated Andreas or Andreas really hated his wife. Andreas was acquitted the next year because uh, the court ruled that Lorenz's t testimony alone could not convict him of those deeds. The calling of Lorenz as the father wasn't exactly random either. Lorenz was married when he stated Victoria first tried to seduce him. In an interview nine years after the murders, he describes a time where the pair were sharing a ride in a wagon when she spun some flirty language at him, something to the effect of, you know, you could easily grab me now, which I will say is pretty risque for the time. Very direct. But Lorenz said that he was married at the time and rejected her offer and she pulled back. But 
After his wife died, however, <laughs> Lorenz is only a human. 14 days after his wife died, Victoria allegedly came onto him again. Quick roll in the hay and a few more times. Five to be specific. She promised Lorenz a marriage and Lorenz needed a wife to help with his farm so he was open to it. They planned and even approached old Andreas and he was actually game, which is kind of surprising. What made it sour into finger pointing later on? Well, Lorenz said that his only condition for the proposal was that Andreas stop having sex with his daughter, which uh, I feel is a solid request. Apparently, Andreas was not impressed by this, even after Lorenz explained that he was a good Christian man and the sins brought on to Victoria from his actions or what he was afraid of. Uh, this all came to a major head when <laughs> the price to pay for alimony of some sort, and that is when Lorenz challenged Andreas, who then chased him off with a scythe, Grim Reaper style. So... That makes more sense that he would say that Andreas was back to his incesty ways. Other than those things, we know that uh, Victoria is very lovely, uh, that she was strong due to her work on the farm, that she was first chair in the church choir in rural Germany. I don't know, there might have been 10 people in it, I don't know. Very pretty but serious is a description I have from an interview as well. We know fairly little about the children. The bulk of the knowledge about Cece comes from a few girls who were the same age as her and attended the same school she did. A symbolic gesture to the frugal lifestyle is said that CC wore the same dress all the time. I don't know if that means the same style or exact, the exact same one, but other than that, we know she had long brown hair, usually kept it in pigtails. Joseph was a mere toddler at the time, so there's no real description of him. So, you know, with the general idea of the family, I think it's time we get into the actual tale of today. The gruesome discovery at the beginning of April 1922 was not the beginning, believe it or not. Depending on what your definition of strange is, the beginning of odd, odd things happening at the farm goes back to Andreas being a total creeper on his daughter. If not, then the uh, first odd thing to happen is that six months before the murders, the family's maid quit unexpectedly. Crescent's Riger had been employed from November of 1920 until September of 1921. The reason for her departure is said to have been one of fear that she felt that the place was haunted. She would describe it in an interview later in life. She says, I'd also like to mention that at this time of night, my chamber door would often suddenly open at 12 p.m., but I never saw anyone. Even though the door was locked, I couldn't lock my chamber door. After this ghost happened almost every day at the same hour, I became afraid and decided to give up my job. Of course, I told the Gruber couple and Victoria Gabriel about this ghost. Old Gruber answered me back that I didn't need to be afraid. Maybe one day I would die without confession and communion. But after I knew the way of life his, <laughs> with his daughter, I replied perhaps... Uh, he would have to die without last rites. <laughs> what a burn. Anyway, next morning I told the people of Hinterkaifeck about my experience. Victoria Gabe Gabriel told me back then that I should never open to whatever was happening. She also said that the ghost probably wouldn't eat her. So, sounds like she was kind of a little tongue-in-cheek about it, which is cool. I told the farmer's wife that I wasn't saying, uh, staying on the farm anymore because... It was becoming so scary for me. But the farmer's wife didn't want to know anything about me leaving. About three to four weeks after the aforementioned chamber window story, I left against the farmer's wishes, the farmer's wife's wishes, and then went into service in Schrobenhausen. After me, the Hinterkaifex didn't have a maid until the day before the murder. Because of her departure, she lived until 1990, which is kind of wild to think about. You know, she really dodged a bullet. You know, the noises are not completely discounted. There are statements from others in the area which Aunt Andreas had mentioned them about before telling them, you know, he wasn't scared. He would be out in town and mention that he had heard noises in the attic and couldn't find anything. Victoria had also mentioned these sounds to others as she shopped. 
Another odd thing to occur was when Andreas found a newspaper on the edge of the tree line of the forest. Seems insignificant, but the newspaper was one for Munich, and they had indeed asked the postal worker if he had perhaps, you know, dropped it on his last delivery or delivered it by accident, but this was not the case. He had no idea why it was there, and it was odd because Munich was not super close. Like, 50 miles away, not close, and nobody in town was subscribed to the paper, so that added a layer of mystery around it. Was it just a random squatter in the woods? Was it someone who had arrived from Munich and was stalking them? We may never know, but the strange things did not stop there. Andreas Gruber also found a path of footprints in freshly fallen snow. Snow in March is not unheard of, and the week prior to the killings, a layer of white dusted the region. Andreas had found human tracks that led from the woods to the farm but nowhere else. Combining this with the sounds in the house heard by some, is, you know, it always appeared to me that somebody could have been stalking slash squatting in the attic. All of these things will play a part in how you make up your mind who you think potentially did it and what happens next. Well there are marks that Andreas found on the uh, doors of the machine house, told a couple of people, one being Lorenz, the man who was trying to court his daughter, if you remember. This is also the location in which the footprints in the snow led to. Were they from the same person? Did somebody try to break in? Were they successful? Well, there was a, uh, a break-in attempt, I think, a week before, but he had chased him off. They didn't steal anything, so there's that. There's also a key that went missing. Andreas only told one person about a missing key, Jake Jacob's sigil. There's some references from later on, like in the 50s where missing key was mentioned, but interesting thing to note is that the first mention of the key being missing refers to it as a front door key when, while when it interviewed in 1952, Lorenz from earlier said that Andreas made a big, big stink about losing their only key. Now why would he specify the type of key as a front door key if he only had one key? You know, how many doors I talked about, why would you go, <laughs> I lost the key, would be, you know, those kinds of things. The exact statements made by the family aren't known, and the uh, human memory is a fickle thing, so I'm curious if they were making small talk and alluded to the fact that they had, you know, had to use a different key now, that they lost the front door key. It should also be known that by the time interview has happened in 1952, everyone would have known about the missing key story and thus now memories involving the Gruber family mentioning it would infiltrate the previous unmentioned memory as if it were, you know, new information. Other instances cannot be verified, such as the commentary on livestock being untied a few days before the murder. This account comes from an almost decade later, and there is a chance that they found out about the untied cattle that were found on the same day the bodies were discovered and conflated it all together. The idea is that this could have been a trial run for the killer and they would have used loose livestock to lure the family into the barn. Another is an exchange that allegedly occurred between Victoria and a strange man in a cemetery, which that's pretty weird. Lorenz's brother witnessed this alleged interaction and saw Victoria slap the man, but there is no way to verify it or even know, you know what would have caused it. One more interesting event that was uh, a donation of 700 gold marks was found in the confessional in the church in Weidhofen, and the pastor there believed Victoria to be the one who did it. In 1922, as you know, the German mark was not super valuable, but is listed gold marks and not marks and i tried to look it up but i'm not sure if this is like legit gold left in the confessional or not if it was then it would obviously be slightly more valuable than paper marks but either way nobody knows for sure if it was victoria or why she would have done it but it does add to the mystery and one last thing before the murders and suspects on march 31st little cc reportedly fell asleep in class according to a fellow classmate after the murders uh she said that cc told everyone she fell asleep because her mother running into the night the night before and the family had to 
go find her in the woods. It was not the same as she later changed the story though to reveal that it was Cece's grandmother who had fled the home. Cecilia Sr. left after an altercation in which Andreas put hands on her in some nefarious manner. The 31st was really interesting day for the farm because it was also the first day of the new maid, Maria Baumgartner. She arrived at the farm in the afternoon of the 31st. The 45-year-old woman had worked as a maid for many years and she had recently been fired from her last job allegedly because she was disabled, which is wild. She had one leg that was shorter than the other and walked with a limp, but I can't find any other things that specify um, what other issues she may have had. Other than the worst luck of all time, she was born with one leg shorter than the other, fired from a maid job for it, then she finds a new job and, well, gets murdered hours later. Honestly, the most innocent adult in this entire story. <laughs> but with that, the stage has been set. So <laughs> taking a minute, but we're there. Let's talk about the murders. If I had not been clear, the murders took place on Friday, March 31st, 1922. The bodies would not have been discovered until April 4th, which means that the murders could have been taken longer than the first day, but in, more, in most sources, they list the murders as having taken place on the 31st. So we're going to go with that. And I think that date is pretty solid and we'll talk about why here in a minute. Six people were murdered on the Hinterkaifeck property. Joseph, age two and a half, Cece, nine, Victoria, 35, Maria, 45, Andreas, 63, and Cecilia, 72. Four of the bodies were found in the barn slash stable, which sits, like I mentioned, on the corner of the L-shaped building. Andreas, Cecilia, Victoria, and Cece all in the barn stacked in the hay. Little Joseph was in his mother's room in the bassinet. And Maria was in the maid's quarters. And the next bit is especially brutal. They all seem to be attacked with the same type of weapon. All smashed, some choked. Starting with the oldest. Then working our way down in the autopsies. Which should be noted was never like an official autopsy like we think of. Like on NCIS or CSI. No, no uh, official one was never like put into the record by like an actual doctor. Taking them to <laughs> a funeral home and doing it. Like it was done on the property which is kind of wild to me, but 1922, baby. Anyway, they are as followed. Cecilia Gruber received seven blows on the side of her head. In the middle of those was a triangle-shaped wound. Uh, she was dressed fully in her day clothes. She was also strangled on top of all of that. Andreas Gruber also smashed on the side of the head, his cheekbone protruding, the right half of his face smashed, flesh shredded, and covered in blood naturally. He was in his trousers like boxers and a shirt victoria also smashed on the side of her head small injuries from an acute tool covered the side of her head and skull cap is shattered right side of her face is also smashed to bits and also strangled she like her mother dressed in her day clothes and the last grouping uh in the barn slash stable was cc the nine-year-old conflicting notes on her autopsy mostly because of you know the time of some of the notes been copied in some of the online sources i found the conflict being that her skull was described as shattered but also uninjured her jaw definitely hit uh her throat had been slit on top of that they surmised that she had been alive for at least a few hours after the attack and had noted that she had tufts of her hair in her fingers taken from her own head um either from the intense pain or the situation or some other reason she had finger marks of blood on her face and neck but translation on notes sometimes switches the genders of the subject so it's hard to figure out if it was a man's fingers because sometimes it says 
his finger marks or it was hers i'm assuming it was hers you know that she's grasping at her slit throat and the blood marks from the fingers as she tried to save herself random sidetrack but if you've ever seen the movie lawless with shia labeouf and tom hardy there's a scene where a throat gets slit and the victim does a very similar thing he's like trying to squeeze that shut anyway she also had a wound on the side of her nose like just to the side of her nose but there's no real specific details on that wound so it's unclear if it was a stab or like what what it was there's also some suspicion as to why her wounds seem so much more intense than the others is it because she was small or was it because it was focused on her the most cc was dressed only in a shirt like a bedtime shirt also noting the surroundings the bodies had a large pool of blood underneath them which makes sense they are dead bodies there's also blood spatter on the door behind and the wall as well now moving from the barn we go to the main living area uh maria the maid she's in her maid's quarters which is just behind the master bedroom she had been killed with a blow to the back of the head a hole about four centimeters deep lay at the very back side of the skull like the the most back side of the skull and a smash on the right side of the head shockingly her skull also smashed in she was fully dressed and her belongings still packed up from her trip to hinterkaifeck she hadn't even unpacked yet all right so last one sad one two and a half year old little joseph was in his bassinet sometimes called a crib interesting thing to note is that the cover was smashed in and there's only one hit so i have to wonder if the killer felt some bit of shame in their actions since it was also you know like since the cover was also hit there's one extreme graphic description given from all this bit and i'm not gonna i'm leaving it out but holy smokes it's pretty dark it relates to the fatal blow like that's what it's about but i just felt like i didn't need to bring that in here so you can look it up if you want those are the victims uh the description of the home was that the victims likely died where they lay or close to there's no blood streaks all over the place the bodies were also covered in hay when discovered the ones at the barn anyway and also mostly stacked on top of one another kind of it's also believed that the attacker or attackers must have left through the machine house that back door i forgot about one survivor the family dog a spitzer uh was hit over the right eye which seems so uncalled for but the dog i guess was very aggressive to some would chase and nip at anybody who weren't for the family essentially which was you know what you want in a guard dog so maybe the perp hit the dog locked it up the weapon has been narrowed down to a few different ideas there's a type of pickaxe that was found in the feeding trough but there was no blood on it and the blood should match the intensity of the wounds on the victim you think if there's blood all over the place blood on the floor blood all over the victims you'd think that the pickaxe would have blood on it but it doesn't some speculate that the cattle loose in the barn licked the thing clean but why wouldn't they lick the blood up off the bodies or the floor i don't know do cows like licking blood off stuff i don't know another suspected weapon that wouldn't be found until a year after the murders is called a ruthal ruthal also called a mattock it's a type of pickaxe kind of but it has this bolt thing that goes through the top handle near the iron head that can be adjusted to be you know longer or shorter depending on how you tighten the nuts on either side and then this would be used to kill livestock like pigs or things of that nature by swinging the threaded bolt as you extend it out further into the skull of whatever animal it is and this would be like how a bolt gun works today now when they found it they sent it to you know find fingerprints but they didn't find any but what they did find was animal hair blood but also human blood and human hair the animal hair they suspected was from a cat or rabbit but what if it was from a dog 
you know, we mentioned the dog got hit in the eye. Maybe that was it. I don't know. The old pocket knife was also found when the uh, Ruthow or Maddox was found, which, you know, could have been used to slit Cece's throat, but it's not known for sure. The idea that the crime happened later in the day on Friday the 31st comes from a few different things. Number one being that Cece did not attend school Saturday the 1st. Was she a big April Fool's fan? Probably not. She was also dressed in only a shirt, so probably either preparing for bed or was in bed when the attack started. The adults still all dressed for the most part and the baby in its crib, that makes sense. Postman would have delivered the day prior and then would be back on the 3rd of April and reported seeing smoke from the chimney as well as no paper, so it did not raise any red flags for him. Um, you know, looking back on it retrospectively. One person did see someone, however, kind of. Local carpenter named Michael uh, Blockle spoke that he had passed Tinder Kaifak property and saw the chimney smoking and saw flashing light in the house. The light was cut off as if the door or window sh was shut, and then a man approached him with a flashlight and pointed it, like, directly in his eyes so he couldn't see. Light was so stark in contrast to the dark that he, you know, wouldn't be able to make out a description of the man, but, you know, the pair didn't speak either, and Michael was so scared he ran away after a few moments. Later details added to this that the smoke smelled uh, horrible from the chimney as he passed, as if, you know, old rags were being burnt. As you know, all the victims were clothed normally for the time the acts took place, but the suspect may have burnt the clothes that they wore, you know, in the attack to hide evidence. This was saturday night that uh michael walked by sunday the family was a no-show at church which is you know big deal because you may remember that victoria was the first chair in the choir major figure in the church really for such a small community two of her friends traveled to the farm to see if anything was up but they couldn't find anyone next day cc was a no-show for class and then again on the next day um and then and the next day would be the third and that's when the postman noticed that nobody had greeted him which you know they were occasionally used to and you know, he would at least see the baby or CC running around. Then the next day, April 4th, 1922, a man showed up on the farm to repair a motor on a food chopper and noticed that the sounds of the animals in the barn and the dog as well, but no people. He waited around for about an hour and then he's like, I guess I'll just go to work and then proceeded to do his job. <laughs> Literally the not my job award, <laughs> I think this guy gets. Meanwhile, Lorenz was uh, curious as to where the people of Hinterkaifeck were, and he sent his son and stepson to the farm to find them. They returned and told him that they couldn't find anyone, and that's when Lorenz and two others, Michael Pohl and uh, Jakob, probably <laughs> Jacob, uh, Sigil, went to the farm to investigate. At around 5 p.m. on the 4th, three men arrived on the farm. They found the doors to be locked, and it was oddly quiet. They saw the gate to the machine room was unlocked so they entered and moved around and noticed that the cattle were loose inside the barn which was odd the dark made it hard to see inside the barn and it was already 5 p.m so they kicked around and found a stack of bodies grabbing onto the foot which confirmed it michael and jacob left the barn not sure if it was like a sick reaction or what but they left and then lorenz ran through into the house and what he stated was a desperate search for his supposed son joseph when the other men joined him in the main house they had already had you know they had to beat telling him not to touch too many things including bodies because the investigation could be hindered from it he began doing all sorts of things as well feeding animals doing some housekeeping jacob became suspicious of this activity shortly after these men arrived another man appeared he noted that one of the bedrooms was uh, there was an open wallet on the pillow of a bed 
that was empty. Later arrival of a different person uh, stated that Lorenz also showed them rooms and let more people investigate and was not preventing anybody from doing things. He was just kind of letting them explore on their own without like, okay, hold on. We got to, you know, keep people out of here or whatever. This man also noted that the wallet was closed when he arrived, which meant that it had now been handled. So bye-bye fingerprints. There was meat that had even been prepped and smoked. Just, just a whole bunch of stuff going on. <laughs> it's like a real mishandling of a uh, crime scene integrity. I cannot find who made the call, but somebody made the trip to Schrobenhausen to report the deaths at Hinterkaifeck. Request was made for police to come by, and they arrived with their dogs at 1 a.m. on the 5th, but because of lack of light, they waited until 6 a.m. before they began their investigation. And this is where the description of the wounds as well as other preliminary information has come from is when they finally arrived. The dogs couldn't find a scent. It had been raining and snowing, so they weren't able to pick up anything. But they did do some haphazard autopsying, as mentioned before. Their initial idea was a robbery, which sounds good in theory, but there's far too many valuables completely left out. There's money, thousands of marks just sitting around. And yeah, it's inflation, but like, still... It's there, and they're gold coins, and, you know, they're pieces, they're not paper, which makes it a little more valuable, I think. I'm also assuming the pointed direction of the empty wallet was left out in the open, perhaps, is what led to them to make that conclusion. What they did know was that the killer slash killers stayed on the farm and maintained it for a few days afterwards, which is particularly odd. They cooked, cleaned, fed the animals, milked the cows even. This caused police to believe that maybe a drifter made their way into the attic to stay and eat the food even you know but even a drifter would take the money left out it's not like they were scared to commit theft after they killed six people they also tried to figure out how four of the people were lured into the barn without signs of a struggle or anything like that you know none of these things pointed the police to any serious leads right away but we do have some suspects. So, I'm going to start with the most striking one to me. And then work into the weirder theories. First starter. It has to be Lorenz, right? Lorenz Schlittenbauer. The dude who had a will, will they, won't they romance with the victim. Who had his marriage stifled by a victim. Who had potentially fathered a victim. But also could have been a scapegoat in that fatherhood with that same victim. He also had an intimate knowledge of the property. He had messed with the bodies and evidence and put his fingers all over everything just did a lot of weird stuff and he looks like the kind of dude who would do it this dude's eyes creeped me out the first time i saw a picture of him i was like oh that's for sure the guy like that's who did it before i even read anything about him many people are with me on this online <laughs> he's on a lot of top lists for the culprit jacob sigil even believed it to be him pretty early on. His behavior was wacky and he gave a lot of conflicting responses in some of his interviews. We have the whole paternity issue as mentioned and then when he decided to run through the house like a madman when they had no idea if the suspect was even in the property or not. His answer was to say he just wanted to know where his son was. Well, up until 20 minutes ago, you didn't even know that anybody was in the house, let alone your son. That's a little odd. I also mentioned that Andreas had chased Lorenz with a scythe at one point, so maybe revenge. There's also some speculation that the missing key was Victoria stealing it and giving it to him in an attempt to hide their relationship from Andreas to prevent more outbursts. Both Michael and Jacob had uh, spoke on how calm Lorenz appeared at first, especially at the sight of Andreas' body, who they found first. The biggest tell, in my opinion, is that Lorenz paid the alimony as Joseph's father. I mean, granted, Victoria did give him that money, but... There's a chance that he could have inherited the farm and their money since Victoria 
the sole owner of said farm was now dead and her heir also now dead this would explain why he made an effort to feed the animals while people investigated and it was also explain why the killer did the same thing for days between the death and discovery another really interesting part of the suspected murder weapon was one Lorenz claimed Andreas had stolen, so in a weird way he managed to place his tool at the crime scene similarly to how he placed himself there by forcing it. He also litigated against people who called for him to be the murderer, which makes sense. I mean, even if you weren't the murderer, you're gonna do that. But he had won an atonement hearing against Jacob Sigil, for which he was awarded 40 marks, which is barely anything. That's like a piece of gum. <laughs> Crescens Riger, the former maid who called it quits, year and a half before the murder she's got a different suspect actually she's got a bunch of them she's got she's got a whole list first we'll talk about anton and carl bilcher or bickler one of the two and then a man named george anton having pitched in during the potato harvest at hinterkai effect had an insider's familiarity with the place according to crescents he frequently engaged her in talks about you know the family living there also going as far as to insinuate that they'd be better off dead interestingly the family's dog a regular barker never made a sound around anton's presence which is something that crescents was like okay that's weird also crescents had some issues with uh, mysterious strangers coming up to her window at night <laughs> this happened with multiple suspects so that's kind of weird crescents had anton knock on her window a couple times trying to pursue her in a love affair anton says it happened she says it didn't who knows but one night knock comes at the window she thinks it's anton but then realizes it might be carl and she speculates that uh, carl was trying to probe for information particularly if victoria was with andreas that night the exchange concluded with crescents um you know just basically not telling him anything now george comes into play here is uh services that he trespassed into the house back in 1920 this house uh did get robbed a few times <laughs> but you know andreas had usually chased the people away george claims that he didn't actually break in that wasn't him but you know somebody had seen him nevertheless uh he did uh help craft the murder weapon the, or the handle of the murder weapon during his tenure at the farm boasts knowledge about the precise hiding spot for the deadly matic tool crescent's suspicion casts shadows on anton's unsettling discussions the silent dog and the rendezvous and then carl george adds another layer to this creepy thing so there's another anton in play too anton gump in 1952 was uh was pursued by a man named dr pop which is a cool name uh dr pop is the part was the prosecutor at the time put forth a theory that anton gump along with his deceased brother adolf gump orchestrated the crimes this theory originated in uh from a, a different crescent crescent's mayor or meyer which was the sibling's sister she had accused them on her deathbed to a priest named anton Albert? There's so many Antons. Like, <laughs> Dr. Bob delved into Adolf's, Adolf Gump's history, painting a picture of a basket weaver born in uh, Karlsgren with a alleged intimate connection to Victoria Gabriel. Jealousy bre uh, supposedly brewed between Adolf and Andreas Gruber, escalating at the birth of Joseph in 1919 and culminating in the murder of Hinterkaifeck's six, res six residents. Adolf Gump's stint in the 
Oberland Fight, Cor Fight Corps in 1919 added another layer to the narrative, taking him to various places, including Upper Silesia. Criminal proceedings awaited him there, accusing him and three others of murdering and robber robbing nine farmers in 1921. Adolf evaded these proceedings by fleeing, prompting a search request to his home, di home district's public prosecutor's office. Born in Karlskin with the ties to Weidhofen and Hinterkreifeck, Gump faced scrutiny for his alibi of March 30th and 31st. Uh, the stations in Karlskin and Schrobenhausen received requests to locate Gump with suspicions pointing towards his involvement in the robbery murder at Hinterkreifeck. Search the search bore fruit in Emmersacker on August 12th. 1926 leading to Anton Gump's arrest. He found himself incarcerated in Wartingen District Court Prison and later in Donawarf uh, District Court Prison until his trial in Resenberg. However, on October 21st, 1926, Gump uh, faced trial for wandering with his partner Magdalene Stomp while acquitted, while acquitted of wandering, received a Gump received a four-month sentence for intellectual forgery and fraud. This guy does it all. Fast forward to March 20th, 1953. Henrik Ney revealed that Anton Gump underwent questioning, questioning in Hinterkaifeck despite his participation. Public prosecutor Renner dismissed it as inconsequential. Dr. Pop. Undeterred, conducted witness interviews in late 1951, 1952, which is where a lot of some, not a lot, some of my sources come from, due to the earlier, fi earlier files destruction in the Hinterkaifeck murder case. These interviews focused on the clarifying Victoria Gabriel's alleged relationship with Adolf Gump, but no witnesses could substantiate the claim. Twist emerged when Jacob Sigil, in January 10, 1952, statement heavily implicated the deceased farmer Lorenz Schlittenbauer. Unable to present Sigil's statement in the preliminary proceedings against Gump, Dr. Pop sought further examination. In her strategic move, Dr. Pop excluded incriminating information against Schlittenbauer from the police interrogation protocol, prompting a cleaner judicial interrogation protocol. Basically, he's dead. We can't implicate him. We got to focus on like the facts that we have. Despite these twists, an arrest was issued against Anton Gump on May 6, 1952. However, later on, later in May, he uh, was freed, citing the 20-year statute of limitations for murder and inability to prove the statute was in Interrupted by a judicial investigation. Media fallout painted Gump as a murderer who escaped justice due to the statute of limitations tarnishing his reputation. Subsequent witness testimonies unveiled Crescent's mayor, dubious relationship with the truth. She's a liar. <laughs> a lot of her family members agree. She... <laughs> As she kind of just hated her brothers, I think. The investigation on Anton Gump finally closed on February 22nd, 1954, citing the statute of limitations. So the Maid Crescents would also point to a different pair of brothers, as I mentioned before, Andreas and Joseph Thaler. Weirdly enough, this pocket of globe had the most redundant names ever. Everybody's a Joseph, Andreas, Victoria, Anton. <laughs> In a testimony from 1952, Crescents gives us more detail on some potential suspects having lived at the farm she's got a pretty good idea and read on people dropping by and things that were just happening a different nighttime meeting was when joseph thaler knocked on her window a conversation occurred in which essentially boiled down to him trying to enter her room she's saying no because she had her child with her and then this is the interview in which the ghost story came from that i mentioned at the top of the episode thaler asked her where you know the family member slept 
where they hid their belongings, but she was dutiful, rejected these questions, basically didn't give him anything. When he finally relented, she kept an eye out and saw as she went to the kitchen for water out a window, she that he had somebody with him who she assumed was his brother. She watched as they walked away, but then stood at the machine house door looking upward. We know that some of the roof was missing on the stable, which was connected to the machine house, which was essentially a small closet, as I mentioned. Thinking about how frugal Andreas and co were, these fightings were probably neglected, and that Joseph Thaler specifically had helped with the harvest, knew the farm pretty well. This combined with the brothers having been caught by Andreas stealing is also pretty interesting. So, the Thaler bros, definitely high on the list for me as well. Now, we're going to get into some more intriguing ideas on who did it. Carl Gabriel. Take a second. Who is that? The dead husband from World War One. That's right, baby. Even though Carl died in 1914, there are some who suspect he never died at all. And then came back to the farm to extract his revenge. Wait, why wait so long? <laughs> well, your guess is as good as mine. But it is, you know, fun to consider these crazy possibilities, discounting several of the men in Carl's battalion identifying his decaying corpse with ease. Now, this is not the weirdest thing in my mind, but... You know, people back then could disappear out of the military, out of public eye, way easier than they can now. The theory that Carl was treated badly by the Grubers, went full zombie killer mode on them, is pretty cool. There were some sightings in the region in 18, uh, 1918, and people said that they had seen him near Hinterkaifeck wearing an old beat up World War One jacket, which is pretty wild. A man named Joseph Bruner, who served with Carl had this to say on it. I was a non-commissioned officer in the 15th Res uh, Infantry Regiment. On December 10th, 2014, I moved up to the field for the second time. That day, it cost a lot of people their lives at Aras, and so people came to the firing line every day. I remember Carl Gabriel quite well. He was a reserve reservist. Probably only came to the field at the beginning of December, and on December 12th, 2014, he joined my platoon. We went into position around 10 a.m., and at 12 p.m., he had already fallen. We went in position around 10 a.m., and at 12 p.m., he had already fallen. A mine killed him. I reported his death to the sergeant. That's why I still remember the name. So there you have it, Carl, K-I-A. His name pops up a lot because of historical fiction serial that was written in the 50s that reported a Soviet soldier who spoke perfect German who knew about the murders. It's pretty cool fictionally, but unfortunately not super realistic. This part that comes across from the series done on it goes as follows. And a soldier in the Second World War claims to have been asked about his hometown in Russian in a prison camp by an old Russian who spoke impeccable German. The person asked named a place in the Schrobenhausen district. The Russian's features darkened. He was silent for a very long time. Then he asked the prisoner whether he knew the name Hinterkaifeck. He replied in the affirmative. The old Russian didn't say another word. His gray gaze was lost in the vastness of the land. Then he turned and walked away slowly, his head bowed. Pretty cool story. <laughs> I have one more odd one that I found, which has been written by a man who wrote a book about the murders. Adolf J. Kopel wrote a book, nonfiction in nature, which he posits that the six-way murder is actually a five-way murder with an accidental sixth. Maybe a revenge fifth, I don't, or revenge sixth, I guess it would have been. Now, if you've been paying attention today, you might be able to guess where he went with it, but... If not, Adolf here is saying that Andreas himself committed the murder. His theories center around the modifications that Andreas had been had made to the Matic tool, which was confirmed to have been done by, remember, George, George Sigil from earlier, who worked on the farm for a few harvests, which supports as being the murder weapon, uh, 
I think 100% it is the murder weapon, but you know, I think he takes some liberties with what I have found. However, maybe the translation are not doing me any favors, no clue, but uh, he says none of the skulls were smashed. That is not the case according to our armchair aut autopsies that were done. The translation of the autopsies say smash skull in several places but here's the circumstantial evidence points that Copel points to the incest relationship between andreas and victoria the aggressiveness of andreas's personality and the treatment of his wife the brutal nature of the man who you know chased people with farm tools often enough for people to remember the child abuse that neighbors refrained from reporting out of fear it would harm the children further. A cruel way he deprived the family of food. Now, in a statement made by Lorenz about the paternity of Joseph, Victoria allegedly told him that it would be better if she were pregnant from Andreas than him because Andreas would beat her to death if she was pregnant with somebody else's kid. The women of the family were all strangled intensely while Maria the maid was not. Cece was not dead as quickly as the others, which couple believes uh, means the killer had sexually assaulted her in that time and when she screamed he smashed her jaw. Cece tore her hair out in anguish from this and then Andreas slit her throat with his pocket knife which was found in the hay where the bodies were a year later though. He was the only one to know where to stash the murder weapon so that it would not be found until they demolished the farm a year later. It was true it was too intricate of a place under the floorboards in the attic above the kitchen very specific place now you're probably like well how the heck did he die then well Koppel believes that uh andreas fell to the ground but fell on top of a pickaxe that was laying in the feeding trough you remember that guy that the injury hit you know that pickaxe blade injured him hit him in his cheek severed his carotid artery apparently you know he didn't have the same holes in the skull as some of the others someone else would have just you know kept smashing his face like the others if it was somebody else that did it but adolf loses me with this last bit here because he also discusses a, a tear off calendar which was torn on april 1st stating that they couldn't have torn it off you know the night of the 31st because why would they apparently the head of the household is the only one that's allowed to do it and did it the exact same way every time according to, to tradition. He also says the bodies were found on April 1st, but we know that to be not true. Other reasons he suggests is that the dog didn't react to anyone specifically, so obviously had to be Andreas, even though we have other witnesses that testify that the dog does not react to some people, and the dog even got hit, so he had to have reacted to somebody. I will say that some of his points make sense. The overkill aspect, the attacks on the women of the family all indicate crime of passion. In 2007, a German police academy group did an investigation on the 80-year-old cold case at the time and ended up finding someone they liked relatively well, but because of German laws, they could not disclose who that person was because you know they can't defend themselves because they're dead but in this investigation they did reveal that it had to be personal uh killing because of its intense nature my favorite bit is how he exonerates lorenz of any part of the crime he essentially just says that if lorenz did it he wouldn't have hidden, hidden the mattock and waited until it was found could have taken it anywhere else and whatnot but you know when they demolished the farm that year after the you know, a year after the murders they did find the knife and the mattock, but so much time had gone by, they just assumed it was a different weapon altogether. Anyway, Koppel continues that Lorenz would have been uh, assumed people would have found it, which I believe is why he ran through the entire house like a banshee. He paints Lorenz as a dude who barely knew the place, but we know that he did spend a lot of time there, especially when he was being courted by Victoria. Like, she literally courted him in a hay pile in the barn. <laughs> uh, he says... 
completely illogical and incomprehensible. Nobody can... Nobody comes to a farm without a weapon in order to kill four adults and two children with a tool that is foreign to them. But literally several paragraphs before he says that, uh, is talking about Lorenz identifying it as a tool he once owned. Oh, but why did Andreas not destroy the weapon? Well, he was confident nobody would find it. So, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to drone on this too long, but I can see where he's coming from. Like, but Andreas falling perfectly on the pickaxe so hard his face gets smashed and somehow it severs his carotid artery, but never bled on the pickaxe and somehow landed on top of the other bodies underneath the hay. Seems like a stretch to me. There's uh, quite a few suspects. I'm not going to go through every one, but, you know, those are the main ones, plus some that I've you know, found funny. <laughs> uh, I think there's like 51 on one one website that I looked at in total, which is crazy. You know, I'm not confident enough to lock a man up, but I think if I was going to be, you know, I was back then, I would definitely be aiming at Lorenz for sure. Him and the Thaler boys are probably the most circumstantial, the most circumstantially poignant in my mind. 11 people in total from Victoria's family tried to assert themselves as heirs to the farm after the deaths. As I mentioned in March of 1923, the farm was destroyed and saw long ongoing disputes over who rightfully owned it and that the sole owner was now dead and her heirs also. Carl Gabriel's dad ended up taking ownership after the murders and some wavering. He was like, I don't know if I want it. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I don't know. Leading up to the demolition, they found the mattock, which was covered in blood and given to the police, like I mentioned before. A rusty knife, which, you know, Crescent's Riker identified as belonging to Andreas was also found. Was it in his possession when he died or was it used against the family? Who knows? The bodies of the deceased also met a very weird end. Uh, <laughs> with the amount of strange things involved around the case, the superstitious people in the area demanded that the skulls be removed from the bodies and given to a psychic or medium to deduce more and then they were subsequently lost during World War II. So, what do you think about the murders at Hinterkaifeck? Do you think it was Andreas, Lorenz, or one of the sets of brothers? Maybe a drifter? I'd love to hear your thoughts. Please post them in the Facebook group. Before you do that, let's wrap up with some of the more fascinating parts of the story we learned today. First thing, how funny is it that small town drama transcends centuries and countries? Reading in all the little weird things that happened uh, definitely makes me feel like I was reading some hot gossip between church patrons at any small town I've ever been in. Also, just the interviews were so interesting to read and how they you know discuss things really put me in those places and i could imagine the people as they described them very well also how weird <laughs> how many weird things actually were happening like i'm not sure is it spectral or is it like more likely that someone was casing the joint ahead of time plotting their plan i think lorenz could have been the guy i really do in my mind he wanted to take everyone out for the damage they did to his name you know he paid the alimony to victoria which i mean she did give him money for but uh he did that to get you know his name as joseph's dad so he could be entitled to the farm but then he didn't realize that carl's parents were gonna fight for it the way they did uh, could very well be some randos but that wouldn't really explain the intensity and personal nature of the crime as those german police cadets pointed out theories are far-reaching and as wild as you let them be i'm sure there are some ghost slash demon theories out there that people have ran with and i just don't didn't find enough evidence to make that an honest possibility for me but uh yeah that's it for this one i hope you guys you know all learned so much <laughs> i wanted to be as authentic to the sources as i could 
I constantly research different interviews and even though it's been you know so long there's still a lot of good sources out there hopefully my translator app didn't lead me astray too far if you like this pseudo foray into true crime let me know if you would like me to do more things of this nature I think it was super fun uh and you know there was just so much to learn about so if this kind of thing interests you want me to do more let me know email me at remedialscholar at gmail.com or go to the facebook page the facebook group talk about it yeah uh, but yeah next week gonna be returning to a familiar format i did hoaxes and experiments well now gonna do histories mysteries that's right yeah i'm not gonna rhyme the whole time though that'd be atrocious i am gonna go through some of history's greatest mysteries like an anthology style kind of like i did those other episodes and i think you're gonna like it a lot um, but yeah, can't wait to see you then. Until then, please review, rate us wherever possible, share us with your friends, check out the merch, hit me up if you want some stickers, or have a topic suggestion for me. And until next time, bye!